Good morning. We have been involved in a series in the Psalms, and we've made our way up now to Psalm 24, which is the fifth in a series of kingship psalms. Love for you to be turning there in your Bible with me now to the 24th Psalm. It's a Psalm of David, and what you will see in the sequence of Psalm 20 through Psalm 24, five kingship psalms, is that he now moves us from, from God being the shepherd king to God being the creator king. You're looking now at the sovereignty of God in these verses. And you're going to be connecting the dots and seeing now how does this relate to Jesus Christ. You're going to be fascinated by the way in which this prophetically moves us through, through Palm Sunday on into uh, Easter Sunday and onwards, you see, into his ascension and his seating at the right hand. We're speaking of Jesus here. And so also take the song we've just sung this morning and find the lyrics to that song embedded in these verses as we begin reading in verse 1, Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? You just sang it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Keep thinking about the song you just sang with this next verse. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, you see. Now, the musician has inserted a selah at that point. Musicians recognize that as a rest in a measure. Wants us to pause now. Wants us to think. Wants us to reflect. Am I seeking the God of Jacob? Notice how many times now in verses 7 through 10, the king of glory is mentioned. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Think Palm Sunday. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and let lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. 
He is the king of glory. The kingship of our Lord. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And now, our Father, what we want to do is to again explore your majesty, to be able to reflect upon your sovereignty, and to realize your greatness is exclusive. It is embedded in who you are. It is embedded in what you do, our sovereign God. You are a shepherd king. You can picture David in the fields, even as king of Israel is still looking upward to his shepherd. You are our creator king, as David will remind us in these verses. And so, Father, for those that are trying to take matters into their hands this morning, and then wondering just why it is that I keep losing my grip. Speak to that heart. Remind that heart, Father, that it's your hands that hold this world intact. And that there are pierced hands waiting for us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior when we enter into your presence. These moments are important. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Holding in my hand a, a checker piece what strikes me about this piece, as in the case of all checker pieces, is that each piece has the insignia of a crown. Each checker piece is meant to become a king. But for this crowning to take place, the checker piece is going to have to make its way across the board. And at that point, it then has the right and has the authority to begin to maneuver, to make jumps that it otherwise was not able to do prior to. But what fascinates you and fascinates me when that person reaches the point of saying, King B, is that a king is fully determined by the moves that are made by the hand of the one who is controlling it. By the hand of the one who is controlling it. You see. David is having to think as he reflects. He looks back over the way in which the hand of God has been controlling his forward movement across the board of his life thus far. And there was a King Saul who was out to take David's life. There were wars with the Philistines and the threat of a Goliath. 
And as David made his way across the chessboard of his life, excuse me, the checkerboard of his life, if you will, here is one who is continuously reminding himself of the insignia, the crown, and the hand that seems to be guiding and directing him, even through the extraordinary difficulties and challenges of his life, to get to where he needs to go. Which is the way it works for you and for me as well. God called his people to be a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19. What I want to do with you this morning now is to, as we complete this little mini-section within the larger framework of the Psalms, is to simply draw out what I would call three kingship perspectives that are found here that help you, to help me to better understand the sovereignty of God and how it relates to the everyday personal dynamics as you are making moves, if you will, across the board of your life. The first comes out of verses 1 and 2. As you and I, as we consider the sovereignty of our Lord, I want to begin with you now by noting the world that he, our God, has created. Now what interests me at this point is that when you crack open the Hebrew text, it does not read in the original language. It does not start with the earth. What the original language in the Hebrew begins with is to the Lord, to Yahweh. In other words, David is saying that his Lord, Yahweh, is his starting point as he begins to make his moves across the settings of life itself. Whatever you take as your starting point is going to shape your view of life. If you take yourself as your starting point, well, then you've got to deal with your world. But if you take God as your starting point, then you've got to ponder how God is at work within his world, you see. We pondered that last week on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Whatever you take as your starting point will shape your view of life. He begins with his Lord, as should you, as should I. So if I were to translate this woodenly, if you will, to the Lord is the earth and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Now, once I've established my Lord as my starting point, then I begin to deal with the matters of the earth and then the world. This gives me a, a different perspective on environmentalism, for example. Gives me a different perspective on the realm of science, doesn't it? And so to the Lord, to Yahweh, is the earth and the fullness thereof, which is in keeping with the Genesis account in the opening verses. Now, notice it says the earth and the fullness thereof. That deals with the stuff of life, if you will. The world and those who dwell therein. 
That's the people that are working with the stuff of this earth. And so now you are positioned in the Ukraine and you are in the midst of a a life group gathering where you are concerned by the troops of Russia that are beginning to line up at the border. What do you begin to claim? Is it Mr. Putin? That's the earth and the fullness thereof. It is the Lord, Yahweh, To Yahweh is the earth and the fullness thereof, the world and those, including he who dwell therein. And now you find yourself, let's say, in Taiwan. And you're trying to figure out the give and the take of the Chinese government and what their intentions are. And you're in a life group. And you are praying for God to intervene. What do you claim? To the Lord, to Yahweh, is the earth and the fullness thereof, the world, and all of those within the Chinese government making decisions who dwell therein. You're in South Korea, and you're in a life group, and now you are praying with regard to the confusing movements and decisions coming out of the north. What's your starting point? To the Lord the earth and the fullness thereof, the world, and those including the dictator of North Korea who dwell therein. Your starting point shapes your view of life. Your starting point even shapes the emotional state you find yourself in. What is it day in, day out, when I wake up, that I establish as my starting point? He is beginning with now what he would view as his creator and God. Bruce Larson. Bruce Larson in his book Believe and Belong tells how he helped people struggling to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. You find yourself in this story? For many years, I worked in New York City, (coughs) counseled at my office. Any number of people who were wrestling with uh, this particular yes or no decision, is he Lord or is he not? Often I would suggest they walk with me from my office down to the RCA building on, on Fifth Avenue. And in the entrance of the building is a gigantic statue of Atlas. Extraordinarily proportioned man who with all his muscles straining is holding the world on his shoulders. There he is. Most powerfully built man in the world and he can barely stand up under his burden. I look at those that are around me and I say, now, that's one way to live. But uh, let's go across the street. 
On the other side of Fifth Avenue is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there behind the high altar is a shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years of age. Get this. And with no effort, he is holding the world in one hand. My point was illustrated graphically and pictorially. You and I, we have a choice, don't we? We can carry the world on our shoulders. We're the starting point trying to make ourselves sovereign. Or we can say, I give this to you, Lord. Here's my life. Here's my broken world. You carry it. Because I can't. Is that where you're at this morning? He's got the whole wide world in his hands, they would sing. Your starting point shapes your view of life and everything about life itself. That's your verse one. But you say, well, what's the reason for such thinking? And now you make your way up to verse two. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now what you and I see at this point is that this sovereign God, when it speaks of he has founded it upon the seas, the writer here is speaking poetically of what we are to understand scientifically and historically. He has founded it upon the seas. He uses poetic description at this point. Established it upon the rivers. Fascinates me at that point. Immediately triggered in my mind a, a movie decades back, Robert Redford, The River. All-American farm family is sitting around the dinner table. Young children are reciting the blessings. It turns out to be a prayer to nature. And you know how they prayed? Thank you, earth. Thank you, son. We are grateful for what you have done. Amen. But I would say, whatever you take as your starting point will shape your view of life. Now, what we have to understand then is that David is now poetically taking into all, us into all things scientifically. The tensions, even in this time period of COVID, Tension is not Christianity versus science. No, the tension is Christianity versus naturalism. In that movie, The River, the philosophy of naturalism is being presented. 
It's the belief that natural causes are sufficient to explain everything that exists, you see. But then you take a step back and you begin to think about this world. And you think about the imagery that Bruce Larson provided, those that he was counseling. Who's going to hold this world? And allow for your mind at this point to begin to take in some basic scientific realms of thinking, such as the earth and its proximity to the sun. Why? If it was brought just a little closer, or if the earth was positioned just a little further from the sun, life would cease to exist. There is a perfect design established by the perfect designer. Ponder gravity. If gravity was just slightly stronger, the entire cosmos would collapse. Think about electrical forces, those that have studied physics, the basics within the atom, electron, proton balance. And if the electron is slightly more charged, every atom is negatively charged. There's the sense of repelling, and the cosmos as a whole explodes. How do you explain all of this? Do you buy into the philosophy of the movie The River? David doesn't. As he finds himself moving across the checkerboard of life, where he is pondering the insignia of the crown and the way that this hand is guiding him forward, forward. And he's having to grapple with all the various moves of life itself, as are you. Out of all this, then, you're able to say, he's got the whole wide world in his hands. My word. He's got my life in his hands, you see. He's got my life. He's got my family. He's got everything that I'm burdened about. The challenges of life. The struggles I face. He's got it. He's sovereign. Allow for scientific truths even to stir your heart to worship. That's out of verse 1 and 2. There you see the greatness of God. There you find yourself pondering the significance of, of how God works. How we're to worship him. How we're to think about him when, when everything seems to be falling apart. Who is the one who puts it all together? For as Paul puts it, by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, our starting point. And in him all things hold together. You feel like things are coming apart? And then you ponder what Jesus Christ faced as he made his way to the cross and then hung on the cross. In him all things hold together. Colossians 1, verse 17. And had David been, had been around at that point, he would have nodded yes. As he ponders the earth, as he ponders gravity, as he ponders electrical forces and the balance that God has created in the cosmos, and he's worshiping the designer who stands behind his design. As you and I, as we consider the sovereignty of our Lord, you begin by noting the world that he, our God, he, has created. But now you're making your way up to verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. And not only are you thinking about the world that he's created out of 1 and 2, but now, second of all, the hill that he has chosen out of verses 3 down through verse 6. The hill that he has chosen, you say, Gary, are we leaving the scientific realm for the geographical realm? Well, yes, we are. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And now in verse 3, I want you to think geopolitically at this point. This is, this is offered antiphonally. A leader who is leading worship poses this question, and then the congregation responds. But first the question who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And you say, well, Gary, what does he mean by the hill of the Lord? In Psalm 1, beginning in verse 4, second Psalm, rather, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, those that are opponents, you see, to the Messiah. Then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, listen to this, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. Pause. My holy hill. Now do you see the word hill found there in the text? Posing the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? As I can see now, the one leading in worship posed this question. Another one, who shall stand in his holy place? Look at the imagery that appears on the screen. There's the holy hill. That's Zion. Think now geopolitically as God is involved in this entire process. And you're thinking now he is sovereign over science. He is sovereign over literature. He is sovereign over the geopolitical realm of life. And ask yourself, and why at this particular point in time 
The American embassy has been repositioned in Jerusalem, no longer considering Tel Aviv as the place for it to be. And what does that mean? As you now consider Psalm 3 of verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me, where? From his holy hill. And then the psalmist, David, again, inserts a selah because he wants the worshiper to think about what that means. And how does that relate to the world political dynamics of today, Russia and Ukraine? China, Taiwan, North Korea to South Korea, and how does Iran fit into this equation and the quiet connectedness they're establishing with both Russia on one hand and China on the other hand? Can we add a third hand? Is there such a thing? And North Korea's leadership. Well... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I respond after I'm told, he who sits in the heavens laughs, in Psalm 2 of verse 4. And so David now in Psalm 15 of verse 1 reiterates, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Another question. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Something distinguishing that needs to be understood. As you look at the imagery of Jerusalem, Zion, the hill, and then you ponder, how did we get here? And the next, the next scene that appears on the screen takes you to the archaeological remains of the Jebusite culture uh, that David and company had to overtake in order to establish Jerusalem as, as the setting in which the sovereign God of the universe had so chosen to be the place for global impact. And I think about that and I ponder that, and you and I reflect upon these things and ask, but just what is God doing at this point? How is God working at this point? Where is God in the midst of all such things? And as you now look at Zion, think about this. Taken from the media outlet CNN. The status of Jerusalem is one of the most contentious issues in Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. I marked what comes next. Ground zero dispute is the hill. The hill in Jerusalem, known to Jews as the Temple Mount, to Muslims as Haram al-Sharif or the Noble Sanctuary. 
This is the piece of real estate that is believed to contain the ruins of Judaism's holiest temple, and on top of which stands the Dome of the Rock. Can you feel the geopolitical tensions? And now you're pondering the significance of what God is doing? Think about what God is doing in your life as he moves you across your checkerboard. And here's the insignia of kingship marked upon it. And you're pondering the hand that moves this piece across the board to be crowned king. And then you are thinking about all that is occurring geopolitically and how God is fitting all these things together according to his purposes and for his glory with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ positioned upon his throne. And now, in answer to that question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Second question out of three, who shall stand in his holy place? You sang the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, now, he is speaking holistically that everything about you and about me is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He then puts in another who, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. And now you're looking at that and you're thinking very seriously about the way in which God is at work about what God is doing, because what he's doing at this point is that he is now allowing you and me to say holistically that Jesus is Lord. And as Jesus is Lord of our lives, we then embrace verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Loop it back now to how this began in verse 1, where from the Hebrew, to the Lord. It's the earth and the fullness thereof. And so now what I do is I connect the lordship statements, six in all that are found in this psalm. And I say, okay, Lord, about that blessing, I'm going to receive a blessing from you? How am I to understand this blessing? Righteousness from the God of his salvation. In other words, when I put faith and trust in the Messiah, I'm declared righteous, which takes me right back to what we covered on Reformation Sunday. David would have understood this when God gave Abram an astronomy lesson, brought Abram outside in Genesis 15 and said, look toward heaven, Another creation moment. Number the stars. I almost sense the sovereign God smiling at this point by adding, if you are able to number them. And what were we told? 
God, in essence, says to Abram, so shall your offspring, seed, be. And the word seed is the very same word for seed, which is found in the Genesis account. When Eve was promised seed, who would crush the head of the serpent. You see, what happens? Abram believed the Lord. In other words, put his faith and trust in that promised seed. We know him as Jesus. Counted it to him as righteousness. David nods his head now in Psalm 24, verse 5. And righteousness from the God of his salvation. What we have here now is a man who wants to think holistically about his sovereign God. Florence Nightingale did. She was known as the lady with the lamp. Every new nursing student ought to read her, her biography. 1854, Nightingale receives this letter from the leadership of Great Britain asking her to organize a corps of nurses to tend to the sick and the fallen soldiers in Europe. 18,000 soldiers. How do you care for such a patient load? She pulled together a team of 34 nurses and then they crossed the waters. I am now reading the account, and though they had been warned of the horrid conditions there, nothing could have prepared her or the nurses for what they saw when they arrived. Lacking bandages, lacking soap, typhoid, abundant water being rationed, she went to work. She procured hundreds of scrub brushes, asked the least infirm patients to scrub the inside of the hospital from the floor to the ceiling. Nightingale herself spent every waking minute caring for the soldiers, and what was she reciting? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. As they were producing a sense of cleanliness in their midst. The biographer tells us Nightingale herself spent every waking minute caring for the soldiers, and in the evening she moved through the dark hallways carrying a lamp while making her rounds, and thus she's been known in history as the lady with the lamp. Ministering to them physically, but also talking about Jesus, caring for them spiritually. The soldiers who were both moved and comforted by her endless supply of compassion. They nicknamed her Lady with the Lamp. And she reduced the hospital's death rate by two-thirds in the process. All the while, having devoted her life exclusively to Jesus Christ, her Savior, her Lord. What do you make out of all that? You're up to verse 6. Because now what he wants to do is to take the demographics of his readership 
And now he says to them and appeals to them, such is the generation of those who seek him. You, you sang about it just a bit ago. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And why the God of Jacob? Because there's this extraordinary wrestling match in Genesis 32. Jacob's about to get pinned, you see, you wrestlers. In Genesis 32, verse 26, he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He was blessed, and so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And now with that as the background, this musician David inserts the rest. Selah. He wants you to stop and think about that. The God of your deliverance. The hill that God has chosen needs to be coupled with the world that God has created and leads you now to this third and final stanza, the perspective being offered, the kingship that he has emphasized. We're five times now. In verses 7 through 10, you're going to see the phrase, the king of glory, brought to the forefront. Why? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. They are to swing outward as the king arrives, that the king of glory may come in. So now the leader of this worship service then poses the question to the congregation, who is this king of glory? It's going to be of the line of David. Answer. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. <coughs> Same idea as what's provided in Exodus chapter 15 as the Jews, Israelites, are being led through the waters. Pharaoh thinks that he's in control. But Pharaoh, you're not the starting point. To Yahweh is the earth and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Look at verse 9. The appeal continues. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient days, that the king of glory may come in. And now you are beginning to think about Palm Sunday, aren't you? When the leader of worship then poses still another significant question to the congregation, perhaps in Herod's temple at that point when it's posed, who is this king of glory? Answer, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And then, and then, Selah. You've got to start thinking. Come, thou almighty king, help us thy name to sing. Help us to praise, Father all-glorious or all-victorious. Come and reign over us, ancient of days. But then you've got a chuck 
who is standing in a church in Moscow, and the year is 1990, just blocks from the Kremlin, and he's informing a packed crowd of worshipers that all through human history, as far back as recorded time, and doubtless before, kings have sent their subjects to battle to die for them, but only once in human history has a king not sent his subjects to die for him, but instead died for them. We're told that they listened with abated breath as he got them to begin thinking about such passages such as Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a beast of burden. And then the gates swing open as the people are singing on what we know as Palm Sunday. Hosanna to whom? The son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This has them riled out there in the temple. Brought before Pilate. Pilate's got questions. Pilate entered into his headquarters, called Jesus, said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered the question, classic Jesus, with a question. Do you say this of your own, or did, and did others say it to you about me? The give and the take. Pilate's got another question. Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And I could just see the look on Jesus' face at this point. When Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. He's getting personal here. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. And in Revelation 19, on this robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And so I look at the checker piece. I think about what it, what it represents. There's an insignia of the crown here. It's not going to be easy getting across that board. David would be the first one to tell us. But the ultimate David, Jesus Christ, would reaffirm that. But as the movements of the sovereign hand take that checker piece across the board to be crowned, always bear in mind, there is a sovereign hand at work making sure that the crowning is secure. He's got your life in his hands. Let's stand together. Father, whether I'm speaking right now to someone watching online,
those in prior service and grappling with their starting point. For those in this particular service who are grappling with why does it that things seem to be coming apart and yet Jesus Christ is the one that holds all things together. How do I resolve this? We start with you. To Yahweh is the earth and the fullness thereof. And we place our world into your hands, realizing it was not our world to begin with. It is yours. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.